Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. Thanks for coming back, man. Good to be with you. Um, hey, if this is something that's working well for you, please just share it with your friends. We want to spread as much good, as much Jesus, as much love as possible here. Hey, so today we're going to talk about section 13 in the restoration of the priesthood. But I just want to, to start out with this idea. Like, the world is broken, people. Like, I'm broken. And I'm not talking about sins and moral weakness that takes us away from God. We already talked about that. I'm talking about the fact that as we speak, I have this zit growing on the right side of my temple. And not a little one either. It's like this big old zit that's been there for weeks. This big, painful, obvious lump on the side of my cabeza. It's ridiculous. I'm 40 years old. Well past puberty. At least that's what they told me. You would think if I was still getting zits, I could at least get the benefit of growing a couple more inches and finally making it to six feet tall or that I'd stop losing my hair. Man, this is a sham. And this is a direct result of the fall. Without the interposing life-giving light of God, all things tend towards chaos, uh, disorder, entropy. Everything ruled by Satan will decay. And I don't know that we talk about the fall enough in our church. When we do, we always like are apologizing for it, always focusing on how good it is, which it clearly is. Families, knowledge, progress, all of it. I'm a fan. But don't forget that the fall really does mean that Satan is the God of this world, as it says in 2 Corinthians, right? Look it up. It, it talks about this all over the scriptures. And the result of Satan ruling this world, the result of the fall is sin, misery, suffering, and my heel hurting really bad every morning when I step out of bed for the first time. Knowing that, quote, the world is under the control of the evil one, end quote, that's in 1 John chapter 5, God sent his son to this fallen, broken fiefdom as our champion. Jesus fully entered into its brokenness. He passes through hunger, thirst, fatigue. Like you, you remember that time that Jesus falls asleep on a boat in the middle of the storm? Like how tired do you have to be for that to happen? And sickness, and, and then finally, Jesus confronts the one who holds all the kingdoms of the world in chains and laughs at their misery. He goes up against this being. He absorbs everything Satan had, and he emerged the victor. With his resurrection, he broke the hold that Satan has on this earth, including sin, sickness, zits, and heel pain. Really, the promise is that your spirits will be made whole through Jesus's actions and that your bodies will be recreated in a perfect, incorruptible, unzittable form. That's good stuff. Now, normally we just look forward to the next life for a fulfillment of these promises. We look forward to a time when the earth our bodies and society will be renewed and we will be welcomed into the presence of God. Like we look forward to a resurrection. 
But God is so impatient for this moment. He's so excited about how fun it will be to be with us that he just can't wait until the resurrection to give us a taste. He wants us to live an early resurrection. Adam Miller uses that, that, that phrase. I love that idea. God is impatient to give us an early resurrection during this life. He's impatient for joy to slip into this life. He's like a dad who's so geeked up to, for his son to play ping pong with him that he he lets his son open up the ping pong table on Christmas Eve so they can play well into the night instead of having to wait like insomniacs for the next day. It's like a mom who's just so excited to be pregnant that she just can't delay telling everyone the good news. Like, I'm going to be a mom. I'm going to be a mom. It's like the aunt who's so overjoyed with the prospect of, of taking and surprising her nieces and nephews with a trip to Disneyland that she lets it slip two weeks early and then takes them out all out to ice cream to celebrate the good news. You see, God loves you so much. He just can't help but let heaven slide into this world ahead of schedule. That is what he does with the restoration of his priest or, or his power to the earth. He wants his church and power to be here. He wants a little taste of his love to be with you, even if it is a little early. He restores his priesthood or his power to the earth to invite you to have an early resurrection. He is saying, why wait till you're dead to enjoy a celestial life? Why let Satan delay the wonders of this eventually celestial world and people? Like, why let Satan win? So today, we're going to look at how God lets a little bit of heaven leak in. We're going to look at how he restores his power to the earth. Um, so as you know, Come Follow Me this week focuses on the restoration of the Aaronic Priesthood. But I, I thought I would change uh, just a little bit and, and give you an overview of how God restores all his priesthood that we presently have. Uh, I want to do this because the process of priesthood restoration is a gradual process. It happens over the course of years and over many revelations. And we're going to get to all those revelations and restorations in proper order. But sometimes it's valuable to see the whole story at once. Like movie, watching a movie all at once in one setting or, or getting a sky view of a football game. There's a reason that they put offensive coordinators up in the booth so that they can see all the field and call all the plays. That vision is valuable. So we're going to look at the kind of the whole thing here, all right? So let's jump into the restoration of the Aaronic Priesthood. So it's the spring of 1829, and it is cold and wet well into the month of May. Uh, all the farmers are kind of hiding inside it. You can't plant your seeds when it's so soaking wet, or the seeds will just wet rot. They, they won't grow. And, and so Oliver and Joseph are also waiting to plant their crops. And so they're making the most of it, staying inside and, and translating as much of the Book of Mormon as they can. And they come to the point in Third Nephi where Jesus dies, right? There's massive earthquakes, storms, fire, thick darkness. People are freaking out. And they hear the voice of Jesus in the gloom saying, will you not now return to me? Repent of your sins and be converted that I may heal you. When the darkness lifts, then the people go to the temple. I think that's crucial. What we're talking about with the priesthood has so much to do with ordinances, so much uh, to do with these rituals that allow God to, to let heaven sneak in, right? Slip in early. And so while they're at the temple talking about the, the crazy stuff that had gone on, they saw the Son of God descend out of heaven. Now, he knows how to make an entrance, right? Boom, a man coming down from heaven, like he's on some sort of escalator here, right? 
and they hear the voice of God say, Behold my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, in whom I have glorified my name, hear ye him. And then as Jesus touches down, he says, Behold, I am Jesus Christ. Christ, remember, is not his last name. It is a title. It means anointed one. It means the true king. Satan may be the God of this world temporarily, but he is a usurper. It is a rebellion. Jesus is saying, behold, I am Jesus, the true king, the anointed one, whom the prophets testified shall come into the world. And behold, I am the light and life of the world. And I have drunk out of the bitter cup, which the Father hath given me. And I have glorified the Father in taking upon me the sins of the world, in the which I have suffered the will of the Father in all things from the beginning. Arise and come forth unto me, that you may thrust your hands into my side, and also that you may feel the prints of the nails in my hands and in my feet, that ye may know that I am the God of Israel and the God of the whole earth and that I have been slain for the sins of the world. And it came to pass that the multitude went forth and thrust their hands into his side and did feel the prints of the nails in his hands and in his feet. And this they did do going forth one by one, one by one, that's huge, until they had all gone forth and did see with their eyes and did feel with their hands and did know of a surety and did bear record that it was he of whom it was written by the prophets that should come. And then after he demonstrates that he is truly the true king, that he is the son of God, that he has conquered death, he says, whoso believeth in me and is baptized, the same shall be saved. And they are they who shall inherit the kingdom of God. So he's saying, if you want complete access to my power, then you need to participate in these public declarations of faith, these rituals, these ordinances by the hands of someone authorized to do so so that you can fully partake into my power. This really hits home with Joseph. Like his older brother, Alvin, he had not been baptized. He basically turns to Oliver and he's like, I haven't been baptized. And Oliver concords, and, and so, so they, they start talking about the power to baptize and the necessity to baptize and being in God's family. And so when the rain finally lets up a little bit on May 15th, they, they walk out into the woods near the Susquehanna River. Now, Joseph's property that he bought from his father-in-law is kind of this narrow strip of 13 and a half acres that extends all the way down to the Susquehanna River. So, so we assume we, he just walks down on his property down in the woods down by the river. And then he and Oliver start praying about baptism. As they pray, they hear the voice of the Redeemer, the voice of Jesus speaking peace to them. Can't, just can't help let a little heaven, a little peace, a little love float in. And then again, God knows how to make entrances. John the Baptist descends in a cloud of light and he places his hands on their head. And they, they, they say when, when John places his hands on their heads, they're just filled, filled with joy and the love of God. Um, and, and he says, upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of the Messiah. Messiah is the same um, word and same anointed one as Christ. He says, in the name of the true king, right? I confer the priesthood of Aaron. And remember, Aaron's performing all those rituals back in the day in the tabernacle, okay? 
which holds the keys of three things. Number one, the ministering of angels. This is an aspect we're going to talk about a lot later in the Doctrine and Covenants in the context of temple worship. When we get to the Nauvoo Temple, we'll discuss it more then, but this is a, a, a temple thing here, all right? Number two, the gospel of repentance. And number three, the baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. Then after John the Baptist leaves, Joseph and Oliver walk into the river and they're kind of in a weird position uh, that's rather rare. Like, how do you baptize someone when you are in need of baptism yourself? Like, this happens with Alma the Elder um, and Helam. Uh, their solution is they just go for the double dunk. Alma says the prayer and then they boom, both, both go down at the same time. I kind of like that system. Joseph and Oliver's solution is a little bit different, but it's still an exception during a special circumstance and not the rule. Joseph baptizes Oliver first. And then Oliver then baptizes Joseph. Now, when they both come up, they start talking about how God's kingdom is coming, like God's kingdom is slipping in here. They start prophesying of the great things to come. Then they follow John the Baptist's instructions and they return to the woods and ordain each other to the Aaronic priesthood now that they're baptized, kind of following the proper system as well as they can. Now, uh, I want to make clear here, the restoration of Aaronic priesthood uh, is completely tied to these ministration of ordinances, right? The ministry of angels, we talked about like, it's going to be a temple context, right? And the gospel of repentance with the sacrament, the ministration of the ordinance of baptism. These ordinances open up the path to connect to God. Like just think about baptism. Jesus describes baptism as rebirth, being born again. Now we're so familiar with this language that, that it has lost some of its meaning to us. So let, let's just revisit it. When you are born you become a member of a family. Like this is the way you become a family member. Like, like you can choose your friends, but your siblings are not determined by vote or who you like, but rather by God's will and genetic sequencing that causes the creation of siblings. That's how you're born into a family, okay? So, so I know you're like, well, duh, but th this is so critical here, okay? Jesus is saying baptism is how we are born again. So what is he getting at? Well, because of the fall, we are separated from the presence of God. Or in other words, when we make decisions that align us with Satan and his fallen, broken kingdom, we are out of the family, right? Cut off, kicked out, garesh, divorced, whatever you want to say. These decisions literally remove us from the family of God. We're runaways, prodigals. We're out. So, so we're no longer family members here, okay? So baptism lets us come back into God's family, which lets us in on family blessings. I think these sort of blessings we are talking about can be pretty easily described with an analogy. See, I haven't lived at my parents' house now for like well over 20 years. But when I go back to visit my parents, the expectation is not for me to ring the doorbell and wait patiently on the porch for them to give me permission to enter after some chit-chat on the porch. No, I'm family. I'm expected to walk right in and make myself comfortable. And that goes for my kids too, because they are family. They come in, give grandma a hug and go straight for the treat drawer. She ain't keeping those juice boxes for herself. Uh, like it says in Studio C, right? You remember the one with the grandma looking at pictures of her grandkids and she says, ooh, these look spoiled. And the other cast member says, yeah, you did that. And she's like, I know, give me some more. 
Anywhere, there's just not a time, even after 20 years, that I would feel like it's necessary to go up to my mom and in her house and say, "Uh, do you mind? I'm a little bit hungry. Could I eat some of your food? If I did, she would give me a strange look and say, are your legs broken? You know where the pantry is? Go help yourself. On the other hand, if I were to walk into your mom's house, unannounced, and walk to the fridge and fix myself some chocolate milk, there would be some very real problems, not limited to a baseball bat upside the head and handcuffs or something like that. Because family membership matters. And when God provides a way to be born again into his family, he is giving us access to all the support, love, and enabling power that is our birthright. We just have to choose to start over in his family. All right? That's what we're talking about. That we're getting into his family again, his kingdom. Now we're going to jump into the restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood. And usually when we talk about the restoration of the priesthood, we say John the Baptist restored the Aaronic priesthood and then Peter, James, and John restored the Melchizedek priesthood. And this is true, but it's also a little simplistic and incomplete. It's the perfect answer for a new member or a young member, but as mature members, I'd like to introduce you to more of a complete story. So you can have a more robust understanding of what was actually restored and how it was restored and when it was restored. So Joseph Smith taught that all priesthood is Melchizedek, but there are different portions or degrees of it, end quote. And so basically he's saying that all the power of God is basically the power of God. He just delegates different portions at different times. And so the restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood was not just one event, but it's a process that unfolds over the span of several years, giving us the power of God that we have up to this point. And basically, this, or, uh, the restoration of this higher priesthood is to split into four major restorative events. Okay, So the first major restorative event is the one we talk about most frequently with the visitation of Peter, James, and John. So Peter, James, and John are three of Jesus Christ's apostles that are with Jesus as some of the most critical parts of his ministry. They're with him on the Mount of Transfiguration when um, Elijah and Moses restore priesthood keys, and he turns around and delegates those priesthood keys to his apostles. They're with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. They're one of the first uh, with him at the resurrection. And so Peter, James, and John appear to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery sometime between May 20th and May 26th, 1829. Now, that's a little bit more of a, a, a bigger time span than we would love to have. We would love it to have it so exact. exact. But the truth of the matter is that, that Joseph's a young man and sometimes doesn't do a great job at keeping a journal or keeping a record, especially early on. Later, he does a great job, or William Clayton does a great job for him frequently. But we know that time date because in section 128, verse 20, it says that they, they come um, in the wilderness between Harmony, Susquehanna County, and Colesville, Broome County, on the Susquehanna River. And so uh, we have other letters and journal entries that let us know when they are traveling. And so they're traveling that section in the week of May 20th to 26th after they have received the Aaronic Priesthood. So that's basically when we know they got it. And what do they do? So Peter, James, and John deliver three portions or three specific authorizations, okay? We'll find this in Doctrine and Covenants section 27, verse 12 and 13. It says, Peter, James, and John, 
I have sent unto you by whom I have, number one, and I'm adding these sub numbers, right? Ordained you and confirmed you to be apostles and special witnesses of my name and to bear the keys of your ministry and of the same which I revealed unto them. Number two, unto, I have, unto whom I have committed the keys of my kingdom. And number three, and a dispensation of the gospel for the last times and for a fullness of times in the which I will gather together in all things, both that which are in heaven and which are on earth. So basically, number one, they are given the power or the keys of apostleship. Now, an apostle is a special witness of Jesus Christ. They, they testify of Jesus's divinity, meaning his godlike nature, and particularly of his resurrection. Why is it so important that we have somebody who can really say, no, Jesus is real. He really resurrected to have this special witness of his resurrection. Well, if Jesus is resurrected, then it is evidence of his complete victory over Satan and death, over chaos, entropy, and everything. It's evidence that he really is the, the Messiah or the Christ, the anointed one, the true king. It's evidence that Jesus really did start his kingdom on the earth. This brings us to the second authorization where he gives the keys of the kingdom of God on earth. This literally is the authorization to move forward and establish his kingdom or his church on the earth. It's this invitation to move the millennium forward in time to begin being ruled by Jesus now instead of waiting till later. And what happens is we form his church on the earth. The church is synonymous with kingdom, synonymous with his family on the earth, okay? And the establishment of this kingdom is in direct opposition to Satan and his kingdom. So, so the work of the church is to throw off the chains of sin by providing a system of ordinances that help us to access the atonement and the redemption. It helps us to slay loneliness by providing a Zion-like community. It helps us to overcome ignorance by teaching truth. It helps to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and provide refuge for those who are adrift. That is what we're all about. Now, is every member of the church perfect at doing this? No, it's extremely foolish to think that that's even a thing, okay? But that's the purpose. The kingdom of God on the earth, moving the millennium forward, wiping away every tear. In fact, what we're doing is we're following Jesus's example. Like what he did when he healed people is, is just in direct opposition to Satan, right? If, if you go over to Matthew chapter four, it says that Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. You see, it's tied together. When he talks about kingdom, then he shows the kingdom by healing all manner of sickness. The same you can see over in Luke chapter eight. He says, and it came to pass that afterwards he went throughout every city and village preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus's miracles were done not just out of compassion, like I said, but also as a direct affront to, to Satan's rule on earth. It's telling us what God's kingdom is like. It's showing us what the millennium will be like when Satan and all the devils are cast out, when there are no diseases, no sorrow, no death. Like, this is awesome, okay? And so number two, they're getting this authorization to call the kingdom of God forward on time. 
Finally, uh, this dispensation of the gospel for the last times and for the fullness of times. This is just what it sounds like. It's authorization to initiate the ushering in of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, the final kingdom. Now, I know I'm talking really fast, right? And if all of that is way too much, just basically remember that Peter, James, and John give Joseph power to organize the church, witness of Christ, and offset the influence that the kingdom of Satan has here on the earth. That's it, okay? Now let's move on to the the second major high priesthood restorative event. This is the authorization to confer the gift of the Holy Ghost and ordain elders. So not too long after Peter, James, and John appeared, things get hectic down in harmony, and Joseph, Emma, and Oliver move up to Fayette with the Whitmers to finish the translation. While there, here's what Joseph said, quote, We now became anxious to have that promise realized to us that if we continued faithful, we should have the authority of the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. We had for some time made this a subject, uh, made this matter a subject of humble prayer. And at length, we got together in the chamber of Mr. Whitmer's house in order more particularly to seek of the Lord what we now so earnestly desired. He says, we had not long been engaged in solemn and fervent prayer when the word of the Lord came unto us in the chamber, commanding us that I should ordain Oliver Cowdery to be an elder in the church of Jesus Christ, and that he also should ordain me to that same office, and then to ordain others as it should be made known unto us from time to time. He goes on. We were, however, commanded to defer this, our ordination, until such times as it should be practicable to have our brethren who had been and who should be baptized assembled together, when we must have their sanction to our thus proceeding to ordain each other, and have them decide by vote whether they were willing to accept us as spiritual teachers or not when also we were commanded to bless bread and break it with them and to take wine, bless it and drink it with them afterwards proceed to ordain each other and then attend to the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost upon all those whom we had previously baptized doing all things in the name of the Lord, end quote. Now I know that's a long quote, so let's just sum it up. Here they're given authorization to do two things. Number one, ordain elders, And number two, confer the gift of the Holy Ghost. But they were commanded to wait about a year. This event is going to take, this event like the vocal confirmation takes place about June 14th, 1829. And they don't gather saints together into an official church until April 6th, 1830. So that's the time that they can actually vote. Now it doesn't have to be a year, but it takes about seven months to print the, the Book of Mormon and to have that officially move forward, all of this. So all in all, they're not going to be able to carry out this Uh, authorization to ordain elders and confer the gift of the Holy Ghost for about a year until April 6, 1830. So once this happens, they're able to ordain each other elders and confer the gift of the Holy Ghost. Uh, Now, if baptism grants you access to family membership, then this stage is the family relationship maintenance stage. Even if you're a rightful kid in the house, you won't be on good terms if you don't pick up your stuff. Or maybe a better analogy is dating your wife. My wonderful wife does so much for our family. She's so organized, 
so helpful, so good. And so because of this heavy input into our welfare, she can get tired. So we found that it's nice to regularly go out and get some slab pizza. Mmm, pizza. Like bl- bacon, blue cheese, and buffalo sauce. I'm telling you, man, blue cheese is a thing in my life. And buffalo sauce, too. It's also good, we found, to have occasional trip without the kids. Because trips with kids are not vacations. They are simply nurturing children without the benefit of normal routines to help support the endeavor. Anyway, the ordaining of elders, as it says in section 20, gives them the capacity to preach, exhort, baptize, administer the sacrament, and preside over branches. In other words, it gives us the tools to maintain and strengthen our covenant family relationship with the Father. Moreover, authorization to confer the gift of the Holy Ghost gives us the best relationship maintenance thing we can ever ask for with the Father. His job is to witness of the Father and the Son, to reveal the truth of all things, to guide our decisions, to give us protection from physical and spiritual danger, um, to, to give us gifts of the Spirit so we can serve better. He's the comforter. He fills us with perfect love, right? He teaches us peaceable things of the kingdom. Through His power, we are sanctified. Like, we're purified from sin. The Holy Ghost is the Holy Spirit of promise. Like, the, the, the idea that all these ordinances we participate in are real, that we're locked into the family. So, when the church is organized on April 6, 1830, they followed the instructions laid out for them in Peter Whitmer Sr.'s bedroom, where they, they received this vocal authorization to ordain elders and minister to the church and confer upon them the gift of the Holy Ghost. Boom! All right, let's go next restorative event. This is the restoration of what is called the high priesthood. It happens about a year later. So in February, 1831, Joseph is working on the translation of the Bible. Now we'll talk about this more late in a later episode, um, but basically Joseph's just going through the Bible and receiving inspired corrections. He's reading it in English and God's giving him more, right? And so he go, gets to where, what is now the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis chapter 14, And it speaks uh, of the man Melchizedek who was, quote, ordained an high priest after the order of the covenant, which means that God, um, which God made with Enoch, it being after the order of the son of God, end quote. In that same revelation, Joseph later learned that those ordained after this order of the priesthood should, quote, should, quote, have power by faith to stand in the presence of God, end quote. Basically, this is what we're talking about. It's the, the idea that you get the, the total complete use of the priesthood, right? And the reception of the, um, the high priesthood is going to pave the way for temple ordinances, all right? So, so, so he learns about this idea of standing in the presence of God, about not just going to heaven, not just being in God's family, but inheriting what God has, like being a king and a queen in God's presence. Uh, now, like we said, like um, this idea uh, of high priesthood is going to be fleshed out and is going to facilitate the performance of higher priesthood ordinances in the temple that qualify us to be in the presence of God. And we'll, we'll talk about that more when we get to Nauvoo and other things. But for now, just to, to, to make it super clear, Joseph reads about Melchizedek having the order of the Son of God, the high priesthood, and the ability to stand in the presence of God, and he's really curious about it. 
At the same time, God has commanded in Doctrine and Covenants section 44 that all the elders of the church should be gathered together and have a meeting in Kirtland. And so because it takes a while for, for uh, the information to go out and everybody to travel, they don't have the meeting until June 3rd um, in Isaac Morley's farm at Kirtland, Ohio. But when they're there, they have the, uh, the restoration of this high priesthood. Parley P. Pratt says it this way, Several men were selected by revelation through President Smith and ordained to the high priesthood after the order of the Son of God, which is after the order of Melchizedek. On this occasion, I was ordained to the holy priesthood and the calling by President Smith. So, so basically, we, we are saying that the Melchizedek priesthood came with Peter, James, and John, and then was expanded with that spoken authorization at the Whitmer farm. And now this is one more layer. It's kind of like a snowball growing bit by bit in response to questions, okay? So the reception of the high priesthood is going to help them to perform the, these temple ordinances, okay? Joseph Smith teaches that the order of the high priesthood is that they have power, to, power given them to seal up the saints into eternal life. Later, he says, if a man gets a fullness of the priesthood of God, he has got to get it the same way Jesus Christ obtained it. And that was by keeping all the commandments and obeying all the ordinances of the Lord. And in the later part of August, 1843, Joseph says again, those holding the fullness of the Melchizedek priesthood are kings and priests of the most high God, holding the keys of the power and blessings. Now, again, this high priesthood is going to be really put to work, full work in the Nauvoo temple and later temples. Um, but this is kind of the beginning, moving it in that direction. Okay. Now, let's go to number four. These are the restoration of priesthood keys in Kirtland that is going to be kind of the cap that's going to be the final thing we need to build full-fledged temples in Nauvoo and the type of temples we have today. Now, the Kirtland Temple is a little bit of a weird temple. Joseph Fielding Smith says that the Kirtland Temple holds a peculiar place in the annals of temple building. It's not like our other temples. It was built primarily for the restoration of priesthood keys, end quote, right there. So, so basically, the purpose of the Kirtland Temple is to get us the, these priesthood keys. Section 124 talks about um, Moses building the tabernacle for the same reason, so that God could reveal ordinances to them. And, and we'll talk more about this in section 84. We'll talk more about it in section 110. But I'll just give you an overview, basically, right? The Kirtland Temple gets dedicated. Oliver Cowdery and Joseph Smith are there. They're praying. April 3rd, 1836, and they have three visitors, right? Moses, Elias, and Elijah. Moses brings the keys to gather and build full-fledged temples. Elias restores the keys authorizing the celestial marriage covenant where the promises made to the fathers like Abraham and Isaac are available to us also. And Elijah brings the, the power to bind together the whole human family into God's family, sealing them up into eternal life, that we can do work for the living and to the, for the dead, and all the ordinances we do will be stamped with God's approval. So there, there we go. And I know that's a lot of information, a little bit more information than I usually give you, but what we have here is the unfolding of God's power to men on the earth. It's the work of a loving, God, trusting God who's trying so hard to get his family to choose to be with him again. He wants to, to make heaven starts now. That's why he's given us this priesthood power on the earth so that we can perform these ordinances. 
They're an invitation to be born again through baptism, to live with him through the Holy Ghost, to to have an assurance that you are in his kingdom through these temple ordinances, right? That, That you are with him as inheritors, not just family members, but kings and queens, priests and priestesses with him. Like, this is so exciting. Dude, I have seen heaven before slip into this world. I felt it. I feel it now. But I remember vividly my cousin getting sealed in the temple. I was there. I was able to, to be there. She was sealed to her, her husband, kneeling before God, inviting his connecting power to come into their lives. But you know the, the moment that I, I really I felt heaven slip in? It's when their young, young son was brought into this room, just a little guy, right? Dressed all in white, placed his little hand on theirs. I felt God's love for us. It's so real. I saw what God's plans were for restoring the priesthood. I saw an early resurrection. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.